Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from Italy, the United States, Brazil, and a see you in hell from South Africa. Starting out with Italy, the Italian general election has concluded. It concluded this weekend, and it has resulted in victory for the Brothers of Italy party, led by the politician Giorgia Meloni. Uh, the Brothers of Italy, which I've talked about in previous episodes of this podcast, is a sort of post-fascist party. They are directly descended from political parties that uh, were established by fascists in Italy after World War II uh, in an attempt to revive and resuscitate the fascist movement in that country. The Brothers of Italy party has won 25% of the vote in this election, uh, which is much higher than any other party, uh, and it is absolutely their best result yet. This means that Maloney and her party have the opportunity to create, to form the government in Italy's multi-party parliamentary system. It also means that Maloney herself is the most likely candidate in the Italian electoral system to be the prime minister for this particular round of government. However, like I said, this is a multi-party system. Italy has a multi-party parliamentary system, uh, which means that it's not guaranteed that the Brothers of Italy are going to be able to found a, a, you know, an actual government. Like, are they going to be able to create a governing coalition within the Italian parliament? We don't know that. Um, it's entirely possible that they will be able to found a sort of right-wing and potentially right-center government uh, if they get the cooperation of some other parties in Italy. However, that is not guaranteed. And uh, especially in cases like this, when a new and sort of disturbingly right-wing party has uh, the opportunity to form government, sometimes people don't let them. Um, unfortunately, currently, it looks the most likely that Maloney will become the prime minister of Italy. Now, she and her party are not fascists per se, uh, but they are extreme right-wing political actors. Uh, they are anti-queer, they are anti-Muslim, they are anti-immigrant, they are anti-abortion rights. They are a right-wing party. Uh, they are also skeptical of the European Union, uh, and they like the example of the fascists in Italy's past. Uh, Maloney herself has spoken fondly of Mussolini, and members of Mussolini's family have been members of this party. Exactly what they're going to do and how they will fit into the right-wing international ecosystem is something that we are going to have to wait and see. In the United States, there are indicators that the Proud Boys, uh, one of the largest and most dangerous of the fascist organizations in the United States, are becoming even more dangerous. Uh, reports and analyses indicate that uh, at this time, almost a quarter of all public events involving the Proud Boys result in violence. Uh, that's up from about 12 or 15 percent before. Uh, this is likely to get worse as the midterm electoral season uh, expands in the United States as we approach November, and also as that means the beginning of the presidential electoral season in 2023 and 2024. In the January 6th hearings, we have some interesting news. Uh, first of all, there was supposed to be a January 6th hearing this week, but it was postponed due to the hurricane that is currently uh, over the state of Florida. Uh, several of the members of Congress who are in that committee wanted to postpone the hearings in the wake of that disaster. They were going to share, and you know we already know kind of some of the things that they were going to share, uh, they were going to share some information about Roger Stone, 
Uh, Roger Stone being one of the most bizarre through lines on the right wing in the United States. Uh, He is one of the last remaining members of the Nixon Watergate team and is also a big political operative for the Trump organization, for the Trump administration. Particularly, they have footage from Roger Stone in a documentary uh, that was being made around Roger Stone's efforts to keep Donald Trump the president of the United States, despite his uh, crimes um, and despite the fact that he lost. Uh, The documentary goes all the way back to the beginning of Roger Stone's involvement with Donald Trump, uh, which is before his election in 2016. Roger Stone created an organization called Stop the Steal, presumably assuming that Trump was going to lose, uh, except that he he could sit on it. He didn't have to use it in the uh, 2016 election because Trump won. Uh, he did use this organization in 2020 because Trump did lose. Now, in this documentary, which is called A Storm Foretold, Stone says a lot of terrifying, provocative things uh, that, you know, really are just sort of like smoking guns when it comes to the kinds of political violence and the coup thinking that Trump and his allies were engaging in prior to the January 6th attempted coup in the United States. Specifically, Stone says on camera, talking to people on the right wing in the United States, because the documentary is primarily focused uh, on his relationship between the Proud Boys, um, or his relationship with the Proud Boys, and other fascist organizations, other fascist paramilitary organizations in the United States, because that was Stone's job in the Trump administration, uh, to be a go-between between the administration and these fascists. So Stone says on camera to these fascists, he says, quote, fuck the voting. He then laughs and then says, quote, let's get right to the violence, shoot to kill. I mean, it's 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 just clear. It's clear as day. It's obvious. Um, He is joking and laughing about people getting pardons. Uh, After it became clear that the coup wasn't going to work, he wanted a pardon. Um, he know, that means that he knows that he's guilty and that he's willing to accept that he was guilty. You have to admit guilt in order to receive a presidential pardon. Uh, this means that they all knew what was up. Uh, they were planning violence from the beginning. They thought the violence might have been the way that they would be able to maintain their power. They were willing to disrupt a free and fair election in order to stay in power. And they were willing to use the violence of right-wing fascist organizations in order to remain the leaders of the United States. It's just, um, it's just clear as day. Crystal clear, mounting evidence, um, and unfortunately, because they're all very old, and because the Democrats don't seem to have the institutional authority to do all that much about this, uh, we don't know if these people are going to face consequences for their actions. Further on in the ongoing aftermath of the January 6th attempted coup, there is a criminal investigation into the um, January 6th messages uh, on the phones carried by members of the Secret Service. Uh, this criminal investigation has uh, confiscated the phones from 24 agents, again, in a criminal investigation regarding their conduct during the events of January 5th, when the coup's plans were just, you know, being aired openly for the people who were going to participate it to see, and on January 6th itself. These phones were handed over to the Department of Homeland Security, which is the um, cabinet department that the Secret Service would report to in this particular context. Um, this is after the leader of the Secret Service claimed that the messages from those dates and the emails from those dates had been erased. 
so obviously they are trying to recover those uh, those pieces of data or they think that they already have or, you know, they're trying to cover their butts and saying like, oh, yeah, we didn't actually erase them. Like, don't worry about it. Um, this is terrifying <laughs> because it means that the United States believes that there was criminal activity going on, uh, potentially in and around the Secret Service. Uh, there are a lot of questions here. Um, one question is, what did the members of the Secret Service know? Did some of them know that Donald Trump was attempting to plan a coup? Probably. Um, did some of them support this coup? Almost certainly. Um, the real curious bit here is that there's a possibility that this will expose a sort of like internal uh, palace coup type situation uh, about the uh, about the events of January 6th, specifically possible differences between the presidential uh, section of the Secret Service and the vice presidential section of the Secret Service. Um, we all know that Mike Pence famously refused to cooperate with the Secret Service on January 6th. Now, he didn't want to get in vehicles operated by them, and also that um, parts of his Secret Service detail were worried for their lives. You know, they were they were calling their loved ones to say goodbye on January 6th. It's possible that these messages, that these emails will reveal some obvious conspiracy uh, and that they will speak to, you know, like, like violence that was planned by members of the Secret Service, potentially against other members of the Secret Service or against other members of the security apparatus in the United States. Um, this is terrifying, uh, and it is exactly what we needed to expect on January 6th, based on how it seemed to be going. Finally, moving on to Brazil, Unlike Italy, which had its election last weekend, Brazil is holding its election this weekend, uh, October the 2nd, on Sunday. Now, the big things to keep in mind are that this election is essentially between Jair Bolsonaro, the current president of Brazil, and Ignacio Lula da Silva, a former president of Brazil. Bolsonaro is a right-wing candidate who flirts with fascism and with uh, involvement with uh, extreme political violence. Uh, he is a supporter um, and a big admirer of Brazil's history of military dictatorship, of right-wing military dictatorship. Lula da Silva is a populist sort of left-ish politician uh, who was involved in the largest political corruption scandal in Brazilian history or possibly in Western democratic history, like as in like all of Western democratic history, like like for the last 200 years. Um, right now, it is looking like Lula is going to win this first round of their presidential election and that Bolsonaro will uh, run a somewhat distant second. Uh, then it would go to a second round of voting at the end of October. However, it is possible that Lula will win on the first round of the vote. In either case, the real question here is how will Bolsonaro and how will his supporters react to their potential loss in either the first round or uh, outright in this presidential election? Bolsonaro, as I have been saying for months, has been laying the groundwork for years to claim that the election was stolen from him in exactly the same way that Trump has been claiming uh, also for years prior to his loss. Um, I have always said that Bolsonaro being a 
former participant in a military junta, uh, likely will be smarter than Trump. And if he wants to stage a coup, will probably stage it, you know, before he loses a presidential election. Uh, so possibly he is gambling on at least making it to the second round of this election. Although um, the votes do not look particularly good for him, there is a serious chance that he will just straight up lose this election. Um, in any case, I highly predict that Bolsonaro is not going to take a loss sitting down, that he will probably try to pull something, and that he and his supporters will do something to upset the um, the process of popular electoral democracy in Brazil. Uh, let's hope that they don't. Um, but um, if they do, well, you heard it here first, or, you know, maybe second or third. Finally, going to close out this week, like I do every week, uh, with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, we are talking about Johannes van Rensburg, uh, who was a fascist in South Africa during and after World War II. Uh, van Rensburg was born in um, 1898 in South Africa. Uh, he was a lawyer, uh, and he was the leader of the uh, Osservandwag, uh, the Ox Wagon Guard, which is the translation of that organization's name from the language of the Boers, um, which is Afrikaans. Uh, it is a Dutch or, or originated language. This is the group of South Africans. This is a population of white South Africans where uh, the majority of extreme conservatism and uh, right-wing sentiment in South Africa originates. Uh, a lot of the worst of the apartheid leaders of South Africa, and indeed the word apartheid itself, uh, comes from this, uh, this community. Uh, the Oxwagon Guard was a pro-German, pro-Axis, Nazophilic, uh, and anti-British South African organization during and after World War II. Uh, they engaged in internal sabotage of the South African economy and the South African military against the United Kingdom. Uh, like we're talking like, like they blew stuff up, you know, like they, they engaged in military style terrorist campaign sabotage. A lot of them were sent to internment camps, uh, including several future important politicians in independent South Africa, including one who would eventually become the prime minister of South Africa, although I'll have to talk about him next year because he died in early September. Uh, so, you know, stay tuned, I guess. Uh, Van Rensburg himself organized this group. He was its leader in 1938. Uh, part of a wave of, you know, Nazophilic organizations, like organizations that uh, loved the Nazis and uh, tried to emulate them. Uh, he went to the internment camp himself, uh, along with the other members of the organization, and continued to lead them even after World War II was over, uh, meaning that he was a true believer, right? You know, he wasn't just like hoping for some reward from the Nazis because he continued to lead this organization until its dissolution in 1955 when, you know, nobody was really out there uh, helping fascists. Uh, Van Rensburg died of natural causes in Cape Town, South Africa, the 25th of September, 1966. So, Johannes Van Rensburg, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. You can check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 Minutes of Fascism. That's 15 Minutes of Fascism, all one word. I'm also on Gmail at 15 Minutes of Fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right. And also at fascism15 on Twitter. Uh, as I said last week, please, if you're enjoying the podcast, really do share uh, this podcast with other people. 
please post about it. Please let your friends know. That's how people get to learn and listen about it. And you know, the whole reason to be doing this is uh, so that people actually get this information and uh, can use it for their own uh, political edification and for political strategy. All right. Thanks very much. And I'll talk to you next week. Thank you.